0: You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Community Church. If it's your first time, we extend to you a very special welcome. So glad that you are here with us today. If you've been coming to grace for any length of time, you know that we're in a series in the Old Testament book of Daniel. We're halfway through the second part, halfway through the second half of Daniel's prophecy. The plan was to go to Matthew 24 this morning where Jesus references Daniel nine twenty-seven and the abomination of desolation. Uh, somewhere along the way, I thought, we all just need a break from prophecy right about now. Well, actually, I thought, I need a break from prophecy right about now. But I'm sure you don't mind at all. And naturally, my mind went to Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. <clears throat> Come to me, Jesus said, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In Deuteronomy 12, 9, God indicated that he had prepared a rest for the people of God. But they failed to enter that rest because of their unbelief, we're told. In 2 Samuel 7, God told David that he had given him rest from all his enemies. But we know that the rest that the Israelites had was temporary. In Hebrews 4, we're told that our rest is only found in Jesus. In fact, in Hebrews, we're told that everything is fulfilled in Christ. All the Old Testament promises, all the Old Testament sacrifices, the feast, uh, the Sabbath. He is the intercessor who knows how to pray for his followers because he was, like them, tested in every single way. Yet, Jesus was without sin. No doubt you came to church this morning Or you're watching online with a wearisome burden on your heart and maybe in your body. And even if you feel unusually cheerful, you know that trouble is never far from the surface. It can bubble up at any time. So this morning, rest in Jesus. Our text today is Matthew eleven twenty five 25 to 30. It begins with the words, at that time, so we know there's more than meets the eye. We'll get to the context, but first, let's read our text. Matthew eleven twenty five 25 to 30. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you and be seated. Now, if you're familiar with this text at all, if you know and meditate on anything from this text, it's likely verse 28 or verses 28 through 30. Taken out of context, this passage can be read to promise an easy life, a careless life that doesn't really have to worry about sin or a peaceful existence free from troubles. But hey... I can do all things through a verse taken out of context, right? (laughs) Jesus was not talking about an easy life. How would such a promise square with, with his words in Luke 9, 23? Come to me. No, I'm sorry. That's the one we're just reading. And he said to them all, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily. And follow me, if you know anything about a cross in the first century, taking up the cross is not encouraging one or pointing one to an easy life. In Matthew 11, Jesus was talking about the rest from burdens that come from trying to keep every part of the law, of doing things just right, don't miss anything or else you're in big trouble. Always attempting to measure up. Be good enough so that above all you can go to heaven when you die but I'm getting ahead of myself. Before Jesus gave the beautiful words recorded at the end of Matthew 11, he had been speaking to the crowds about the refusal of many, particularly the Pharisees, to believe either John the Baptist or Jesus. John was rather serious, Jesus said. He was constantly calling people to repentance. Quit doing this, start doing that. I have been cheerful I eat and drink with sinners. You weren't serious about John. You didn't take him seriously. You think that I'm a drunk. You mock me because we, we tried every way to get truth to you. But you refuse to listen. Why do people refuse to listen? Why, do, In Jesus' day, did the people refuse to listen? Arrogance. He said, even as you accuse my followers of being theological babies. That word children really could be translated infant. In verse 25, Jesus turned joyfully to the Father, and in his public prayer, he instructed those who listened to him. In his prayer, he was giving instruction to the people who were listening. Now, you've probably heard someone say, when you pray to God, if If someone maybe you've asked someone, "Would you pray uh, for our meal?" and they say, "Oh, I just don't know how to pray in front of a crowd and they say, "Oh, just pray like you're praying to god well that's that's wrong on a couple of counts when we pray to God, we should never Be casual. Now look, Hebrews 4.16 makes it clear that we can come with confidence and boldness to the throne of grace because of Jesus' work. We can go directly to the God, but we must never forget that he is the creator God of the universe. He's transcendent, and it is a privilege to be in his presence. Furthermore, when we pray publicly, we are praying on behalf of others. So, our prayers should be theologically grounded. As Jesus gave thanks to his Father for revealing truth to some and hiding it from others, it would be fair to say that from a human perspective, Jesus' ministry was failing just at that time. I mean, the religious leaders had utterly rejected his message. Cities that should have repented in Galilee, people in those cities, were refusing to repent, and even John the Baptist had questioned whether Jesus was the Messiah or not. <clears throat> but he didn't turn to the Lord and say, Oh, Lord, this isn't, just isn't going right. He prayed joyfully, and when Jesus thanked his Father for hiding the truth from the wise and understanding and revealing it to children, he was being sarcastic. Now, think about this. He was using sarcasm in his prayer. He said, you've hidden truth from the wise and understanding. And you've revealed it to babies, little babies. And I thank you, Father, for that. If the religious leaders had been truly wise, they would have received Jesus as the Messiah, Savior, and King That he was. Instead, they smirked and mocked and grew infuriated with one who claimed to be God in the flesh. On the other hand, even as the Pharisees considered any who would follow Jesus to be just as ignorant as a little baby, Jesus thanked God for revealing truth to them. So, what was going on here? Was God's election playing out in front of their eyes? He chooses whom He will, or was this the consequence of unbelief and the blessing of simple faith? Yes, it was both. It's a real-life example of what Jesus taught in Matthew 23:12. "Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted." D.A. Carson has made some very helpful remarks about the truth that we find here. Quote, The point of interest in the educated is not the education of the wise and understanding any more than the point of interest in the little children is their age or size. The contrast is between those who are self-sufficient and deem themselves wise and those who are dependent and love to be taught. The astonishing thing about God's activity is not that God acts in both mercy and judgment, but who the recipients of that mercy and judgment are. Those who pride themselves in understanding divine things are judged. Those who understand nothing are taught. Do you remember when Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the gates of heaven? And they're like, they were astonished. They said, well, Lord, who can be saved? Because the thinking was, if you serve, obey, bless God, he's going to bless you in every way material. So your wealth and your education was an indication that God was blessing you. And your lack of either was an indication that God was judging you. And so Jesus has turned that whole thing upside down and saying, no, This is the truth about it. And he would often mock those who were so sure that they were right. In the end, or perhaps it would be better to say, in the beginning of our relationship with God, those who will be saved are those who are honest with themselves, first and foremost. They're honest with themselves. They are the ones who understand that they have nothing to offer to God that would please him and appease his righteous wrath against their sins. And having acknowledged such, when they acknowledge, Lord, I'm a sinner without any hope, they throw themselves on the mercy of the Lord, which he gives in abundance to those who trust in him. Salvation is, in a nutshell, about repentance from sins, And faith in Jesus. What posture is required to confess your sins and to call out to God to save you for Jesus' sake? Humility. Not the kind of humility that says, well, Lord, you know, I failed. I'll try to do better. Um, You were right about this. I was wrong. But hey, I'm going to get it right next time. No. Humility. Humility. That again, recognizes my sin. If we are to be saved, we must humble ourselves and confess our sins and believe that Jesus died for us because we couldn't save ourselves. Furthermore, if we are to walk with him as believers in the ways that he wants us to, if we have any hope of rest as followers of Christ, then humility... Is a must. I really would have loved to have brought in the Beatitudes. But blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize their own poverty of spirit and soul. And that they have nothing to the Lord. Give to the Lord. But he blesses us abundantly with his gifts to us. In verse 27, Jesus makes such an audacious claim. Such an audacious claim that you either have to believe it or reject it utterly. He's praying still. All things, well, maybe not. Maybe he's turned to the people and he's saying, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. No middle ground. With Jesus, I, I think that's why people are not necessarily offended when you talk about God, but they are big time offended when you talk about Jesus, because with Jesus, no middle ground. it's you're all the way in, or you're all the way out. Either He is who He claims to be, or he was a liar who has deceived billions of people through the ages. Jesus is the only one who has ever lived that was qualified to reveal God to us because he is God. That, of course, being able to be said because we accept what he said. We believe that he is who he says he is. Now, he has made the Father known to whomever... He desires. And before you say, hey, wait just a minute, are you saying, why don't you just thank the Father for sending Jesus to die for you? Why don't you say, thank you, Holy Spirit, for opening my eyes and letting me see and call out to Jesus? What about just saying that? When you approach with the spirit of gratitude, the beautiful invitation and promise of Matthew 11, 28 to 30 will settle you like nothing else will. Let's read it again. It's worth reading again. Verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So once again, the question: does Jesus choose to reveal the Father and himself to whom He will, or does He invite all to come? You know the answer. <laughs> Jeffrey Gibbs says it quite well. Quote, Remarkably, Jesus' words pull Matthew's readers back from the precipice where he says in verse 27, only those that I reveal will know it. Of a one-sided understanding of this passage, Jesus' words in verses 28 to 30 restore the saving paradox of the God God Who brings some people to faith through the message that all are invited to believe. Does that make sense? It probably doesn't help you all that much if you're really struggling with election and choice. But that last sentence, it's the paradox of the God who alone brings some people to faith through the message that all are invited to believe. Before we make application from this remarkable text, it's good for us just to linger with Jesus' invitation and promise in verses 28 to 30. When Jesus promises rest to those who are burdened and heavy laden, he is speaking to those who have been told all their lives that they would need to be near, to, near as near perfect as possible to have any hope of salvation. Most of the ones who believed Jesus' message were those for whom life was not easy. And so they struggled to feel secure in the keeping of the law. Money does a lot of things for us. I remember my wife years ago, many years ago, my first wife, Linda saying. Beauty takes time. And I said, beauty takes money is what beauty takes. <laughs> you know? Time and money. Um, but there are so many things that money makes life easier. It creates all kinds of problems that, that people without money have. But still, if you're positioned just right, the law can be easy for you. The law can be easy because all of us make a law that we can that we can live for ourselves, right? I live this way. Because it's easy for me, uh, I see that what I don't struggle with, you do struggle with. So I've got real concerns about you. And they're like, well, but, but you struggle with what I don't. And, and you're like, yeah, but uh, I, I, that's what the Pharisees had done. But for people that, that struggled to keep the law, Jesus' message was salve. It was an ointment the soul. Good news, Jesus said, salvation is in me not in keeping the law. Is Jesus' offer of rest still applicable to those who are already following him? Yes it is. We're told in verse 26 it's God's gracious will to make the truth of the gospel in Jesus known known to the humble. Since as we'll consider in the application, we application we ought to be preaching the gospel to ourselves every day, Jesus' call to rest is for you at this moment. I mean, our hearts have just been broken this week to hear about a fifth grader who lost a battle with infection in her body. And then Jen Grumbach's family that's already suffered so much, Jen's cousin, being in that freak accident where a tire came through the windshield and it looked like she wasn't going to make it. Last word, I heard she was doing okay. And then just this morning, we heard of the death of 11 YWAMers in Tanzania. And a number of our members have served with YWAM at one time or another. And many more than those 11 are in critical condition who were in that awful four car crash many of you are facing personal pain that is private nobody else knows about it something you're struggling with some of you are struggling with your own sin and wondering how did I get here I was so committed not to do it what are you to do rest in Jesus Jesus Resting in Jesus doesn't mean that we kick back and live a life of ease that is free from guilt. What it means is that we are now freed to serve Jesus. In the words of the great theologian, Bob Dylan, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And he's right. That was written in his brief flirtation with Christianity. Um, He's converted back to Judaism. If you you listen to the song, Save, that was covered by Third Day many years ago. Many of you don't know who Third Day is. Um, But that's okay. You'd have to think the man is on to something. And recent reports are maybe he's... Coming back, thinking about Jesus again. But the truth remains. You will serve somebody. And he's right about who you're going to serve too. It'll either be the devil or it'll be the Lord. That's why the Babylon Bee described uh, its own version of the Super Bowl ad as Satan. He gets us. What is that? It's sarcasm, just like Jesus used in his prayer. Because God loves us as we are, but he does not accept us as we are. The rich young ruler said, what can I do to be saved? And Jesus said, what, what do you see the law saying? He said, I've kept it all. He says, okay, you just got one thing. Give all you give, give all you have to serve the poor and then come back. And follow me. And he went away sadly. And Jesus was sad that he went went away. But he didn't say, hey, 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 come back, come back. It's okay. You can stay like you are. No. When Jesus saves us, he saves us to something entirely different. When Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he was saying, because I'm going to change you. You're no longer yoked up to this other life. Now you're yoked to me. The yoke of the religious leaders was heavy and harsh. To learn the way of the law was to be under a heavy burden of regulation and man-made expectations that served the teachers of the law, but not people in general. To learn the way of Jesus is to learn humility and gentleness. It is to learn grace and true compassion for others. And only when we learn from Jesus' example will we find rest for our souls. But only as we abide and rest in Him can we follow His example. C.S. Lewis called himself the most reluctant convert. As he was becoming increasingly convinced of Jesus claims to divine to be the divine redeemer he knew that his life and his thinking would have to be utterly radically altered if he would believe and it was only after he believed that he discovered that Jesus yoke was easy and his burden was light it's the way of the life to which we are called believe And then understand, not the other way. So what is our takeaway from this text? Takeaways would be more appropriate. Six thoughts, beginning with this. If you do not know the Lord, ask him to give you a childlike faith. To trust Jesus as your Savior. When I ask you if you know Jesus, I'm not asking if you've been baptized or if you grew up in a Christian home, or even if you believed that Jesus was who he said he was. I'm asking if you've ever recognized that there's nothing you can do to save yourself and that you've acknowledged your sin before God or you've repented from your sins and that you put your faith and trust in Jesus alone that when he died on the cross, he was taking your place. And your only hope is in him. For some of you, that might look like the light's coming on as a teenager or as an adult. It's like all of a sudden, I see it, and you fall on your face. Whether you literally fall down on on your your face or not, that's not my point. But you you cry out in your heart, oh God, I'm a sinner. Please save me for Jesus' sake. For others of you, it might mean that you grew up in a covenant Christian home and you've believed this all your life. I didn't used to have a category for that. I do now. But even still, there's some point where you say, Yes, Lord, I affirm. This is what I believe. I know I have no hope of being saved apart from Jesus. And I need Him as my Savior. Even if you believed it your whole life. And I'm not saying that's when you get saved. I'm just saying it's good to affirm it. It's good for all of us to affirm. My mom used to teach a Sunday school class in the Methodist church. And when I would go, one or two of you were there in that class. Um, She would say, okay, we're going to confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And, And then she'd just be quiet and somebody would say, I confess Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I confess Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And one by one, people would say it. Not everybody said it, but a lot of people did. I, my friend Denton, who was here last Sunday morning, uh, one of the things that he said was when people asked him, have you asked Jesus in your heart? He said, yes, I do every day. Now, he's not meaning he was getting saved every day, but the point is we're affirming our belief in Christ and Christ alone For our salvation constantly. It's part of one of those other points that we'll come to in a little bit. So if you have trusted Christ but you've never been baptized. Then I want to encourage you to look for announcements soon. We're going to be having a baptismal service in the not too distant future. And Ricky Lee is going to be taking over that duty of baptizing. That privilege of baptizing believers But if he wants to use waiters, we might have to get him a smaller set of waiters. So that's the first point. Second, as a believer, ask God to give you a hunger and thirst for the truth of his word. All of it. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus said, and learn from me. So much of what is recorded in the four gospels, don't treat the parables like Aesop's fables. It, there, these are debates between Jesus and the religion, religious leaders of the day. He's essentially saying, it's not about religion, it's about a relationship with me. And so much of that back and forth was about the issue of who Jesus was. The religious leaders considered Jesus a hick preacher that had cast a spell on peasants. Jesus always bested the leaders in debates, always, and often said something to the effect, you think you're so smart, you're the Bible teachers of the people of God. You know the scriptures inside out, upside down, but you've missed the whole point. The whole point is me. It's always pointing to me. And that's a good reminder for even those who believe. Scripture always points to Jesus. We're told that all Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable in all sorts of ways for our lives. So ask God for a hunger and thirst to learn and grow in the understanding of the entire Bible including Daniel. Third, be gentle toward those who disagree with you on open-handed issues. Now, <clears throat> some of you don't know. Most of you do, but some of you don't know. We try to distinguish here at Grace between closed-fisted issues and open-handed issues. There are some issues that we'll never have any debate about. The Trinity, the triune God, salvation by grace through faith, um, the importance of baptism and the second coming. But there are some open-handed issues that we just agree to disagree on, like the mode of baptism. Baptism is here. The mode of baptism is here when you get baptized. Uh, The second coming is here, but how the events are going to unfold before Jesus returns, they're more open-handed. We're equally committed to both These issues and these issues, but we understand over here there are going to be differences. So I I hope you're enjoying a brief break from prophecy as much as I am. I hope also that you're eager to renew your commitment to learning about how Daniel and Matthew and Revelation all tie together along with many other texts in the Bible. Have you realized yet that we don't all agree on how to interpret the end times and the end times theology. Have you also recognized that whether you agree with others or not, there are good plausible explanations, biblically found, founded explanations for people who believe differently than you do. Perhaps you have realized that you don't know nearly as much as you thought you did about this topic. Or maybe you feel like you don't know anything at all when it comes to scripture. I, I, I know what that feeling is like. If that's your concern, take heart with this next point. Recognize that following Jesus and learning from him is both a lifelong privilege and a lifelong responsibility. To be honest, the last point, the third point of this application is a stretch as far as the text is concerned, although it is part and parcel of trying to uh, or taking our Jesus yoke upon us and Ourselves and learning from Him. This point, however, is clearly in the text and it's everywhere in Scripture. Following Jesus and learning from Him is a lifelong affair. Hopefully, that will encourage you uh, when you hear things that you don't fully understand. We learn in layers... Someone at home group said this week, it finally clicked. It it just all of a sudden makes sense. And you know what that means. A particular portion of understanding of how prophecy works fell into place in her mind. And it doesn't mean that she's got it now. She's got it all. But it means that a, a significant piece of the puzzle was put in the right place and then that makes all the pieces around it easier to fit. You have a far better idea of what you're looking for now that this piece or this section has been put in place. No matter how complex a particular text is that we're studying or what we're reading, knowing that it all points to Jesus is most helpful and it reminds us of our next point. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Lest you fall back into the default posture of legalism. Legalism is the desire to justify yourself by your actions and or your beliefs. All of us are legalistic in some way. Even those who have never even heard the name of Jesus. Because again we, we seek to prove that we're worthy of God's approval by the deeds we do. And once again, even those who claim to believe that there is no afterlife seek to justify their existence by the things that they do. Those who are willfully criminal or cruel to others have justified their actions by their belief that they deserve to mistreat others because, well, just because they deserve it. But we've all got our standards, hence the the phrase, honor among thieves. In every group, there's a standard of conduct, or you're having a standard in your own mind that you live up to. For Christians, it's easy to fall back into a pattern of seeking to please God by the do's and don'ts checklist that we have formed in our own minds. This, of course, can lead to terrible guilt. Remember, we are called to follow Jesus, learn from him, to obey him, so, that, so this isn't a free pass to just live any way that we want to. It's a reminder, though, that we cannot do anything for our own sins, and so our only hope is in Jesus. We can't atone for our sins. Maybe... Part of the reason, Romans 7, that you're struggling with sin is to remember how helpless you are on your own. That thing that you just can't seem to get past. It'll only be when you round the corner and get to Romans 8 that you you are encouraged to know that Jesus is going to do the work for you when you rest in Him. Service that pleases the Lord can only occur when we remember that we are sinners and he is perfect. When we forget this truth, this basic truth of the gospel, then we become proud. And only the humble can rest in Jesus. And only in resting in Jesus will we live Free from guilt of sin and full of purpose and love seeking to minister to others. And that leads to the last point, which is just simply rest in Jesus. So don't you want to lay those burdens down? (laughs) Lay them at the foot of the cross. And remember Jesus' words. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you know who we are at our core. You loved us enough to send Jesus to die for us. and So we pray as we have received your word and your invitation to rest in Jesus. We pray that it may be All our hearts desire to cast ourselves upon you. Father, we ask for you to be exalted in our lives through Christ. And to give us the rest, the kind of rest in Jesus that glorifies you. No matter what our circumstances No matter how difficult life is and all that we say and do, may we glorify Him. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand? Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission.